Hello there, welcome to episode 73 of the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. My name is Gary Turner, your host, and I'm very excited to bring you today Gethin Naden, who is Director of Employee Wellbeing at Benefex and also author of the very popular multinational selling book, A World of Good Book. Uh, I really hope that you enjoy this conversation today as much as I did. Um, a couple of the things that I really enjoyed uh, Gethin sharing today well, that he spoke to the fact that to be a good manager, a manager with humanity, it's not an easy thing to do. And uh, what we're speaking to here is around the technical versus uh, people leadership dynamic that is, uh, that is often discussed. And also he spoke about that showing that vulnerability really warms me to other people. So actually by just showing a little bit more of that true you, it does indeed warm you to other people. So just a couple of little insights up front um, from this really, really engaging conversation with Gethin Naden. Please do listen in. Let us know via any social media that you use, what you thought, what you took away, and we'd love to hear from you. So enjoy the conversation with Gethin. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. This evening, I am super excited to have a friend and peer, Gethin Nadin, back on the podcast, but for a full episode tonight. So Gethin, for those that may not know him, he's Director of Employee Wellbeing at Benefex and an Employee Experience Expert. So welcome to the podcast, Gethin. Thank you for having me back. Um, obviously, I did something right the first time, so thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> well, just for anybody that's wondering what that first time was, Gethin kindly joined me um, along nine other generous souls as part of Self Care Week uh, back in November 2018, where we did 10 times 15-minute podcasts. So, uh, no, they, they were really well received, Gethin, so thanks for taking part in that as well. No problem. Thank you. Um, as we get going, for anyone that may not know you, or indeed for those that do, can you just give us a bit of a, a lowdown? What's going on for you right now? You know, what are you enjoying about the uh, the world of employee experience and um, well-being? And what are you passionate about, Gethin? I'm really interested in that. So I think since employee experience kind of really started to take off, um, and in the very early days when I kind of started to realise that, you know, engagement at work was a product of a great employee experience, um, and that obviously caused me to write the book. And so. You know, the book has been incredibly well received, um, couldn't have predicted how well received it's been and, and internally grateful to anyone who's kind of bought it and talked about it. And as that book has kind of settled in and other books have arisen, more companies have started to um, digest the research on employee experience and started to realize that actually designing great experiences at work is something that all organizations really need to be committing to. So um, my work is now less around raising awareness of the employee experience and actually starting to help people build those strategies. Um, and over the last kind of 12 months-ish, uh, a lot of that focus has been on well-being. So I think well-being is an incredibly important part of the employee experience. And so I'm starting to work with our clients to consult on their well-being strategies, continuing to kind of talk up and down the country and, and actually across Europe about well-being employee experience design so trying to get out there spread the word um, and helping people design those experiences um, so that ultimately employees have a great experience at work well that's, that's awesome and just for anyone that's listening that may not be aware of, of the book which i missed in the introduction it's the world of good book and has that been translated into other languages as yet Gethin? it hasn't no um i get asked quite a lot whether it's going to get translated or uh, if i'm going to do uh, an audio version um, but you know the, the book is self-published so it, it doesn't have a publisher it was published by me um, and so you know 
producing it and um, putting it into different languages is, is very difficult. Um, that's quite a lot of work for one individual, um, and as is a uh, an audio version of the book. But um, maybe I'll just record myself reading it one day and issue that. I don't know. <laughs> well, you've got a good uh, falling asleep voice, Gethin, so I'm sure that'll work nicely. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. Uh, it's definitely a compliment, for sure. Um, in terms of the book process, before we get dive back into a little bit more of your background, Gethin, what was that, you know, in the spirit of this podcast around sort of courage, vulnerability, awareness, this sort of thing, what was your, what was your sort of trigger for writing the book in the first point? What was going on for you? What was you looking to try and impact um, by writing the book? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I had, um, whilst um, working at Benefex, I'd got into the, the, I did a lot of sales. I managed all of our global partnerships. Um, and I kind of got myself into the situation where I believe that if I was going to try and sell you the product, that was one thing. But if I was going to convince you to sell this product to all of your clients, that was a completely different sell. And that required me to be an expert in everything to do with engagement, experience, uh, well-being, et cetera. Um, and I was naturally interested. So I, was, I started reading a lot more. I started listening to a lot more, which led to lots of speaking opportunities and more research and that kind of thing. And um, and so I started to have a real desire to want to put stuff out there for people to read and, and get that hopefully positive feedback. Um, and at about the same time, I started to experience some anxiety about work for the first time ever um, and really started to kind of just worry about work in a way that I perhaps didn't um, in the past. Um, that subsequently actually led to um, six months worth of counselling at the start of this year. So not anything serious but stuff that was niggling and uh, playing on my mind and you know there were some unresolved issues where I'd been treated pretty badly at work about you know almost 10 years ago that I was still hanging on to mm-hmm. so um, thankfully I'm out, out the side of the, the back end of that now and you know talking therapy has been incredibly useful for that and uh, you know recommend it to anybody um, but as that anxiety first started to surface I kind of felt like I needed to refocus on something outside of work work became a very big part of who I was and my life inside and outside of work. And so, um, yeah, I just kind of started writing and probably in retrospect, I shouldn't have written about something so closely related to my job, but it, it became a focus for me outside of work. And, um, and yeah, it was obviously written with a lot of heart based on my previous experiences of being badly treated at work, but also my experiences of being treated very well at work. Oh, th- thank you so much for sharing so openly and, and vulnerably your, you know, the reason for writing that book. I think that's so, so powerful to, for, for you to speak about. And I, I think what's really fascinating for me, though, it's funny, isn't it, how you speak about something that was quite close to your heart, your organisation, yet look at you now, and I'm sure the value, actually, by you stepping into your courage and speaking about something so close to your heart, actually looks like it's going to prove some benefits for everyone. Yeah, I hope so. I think it's... um. We, we seem to have got ourselves into a situation, I think, particularly in the kind of employee experience, benefits, engagement type industries, where we, we lost the experts in the room. So you, know, you used to always have some kind of high profile um, people across all the major big consultants firms, um, particularly in the UK, but also in the US. Um, and I think we kind of lost our way with that. And actually, I guess the advances of social media and things like YouTube and the podcasting meant that actually lots of people could start getting their voice heard. Um, but I think it's become really important for us to kind of let our clients and potential clients know whatever industry we're in, that we still have clever people working for us and to take some of those employees and in a really positive way, put them on a pedestal and actually 
almost put their work up as some kind of expert and say, you know, if you come and work with us, these are the great employees you get to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that kind of social selling, I think, is in the future going to be really powerful. And, you know, you talk about the future of work and if, if the robots do take over and there's not going to be as many uh, humans at work, I think the abilities and experiences of those clever individuals um, are going to prove really, really important. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, Benefix has been really good at kind of recognizing that and recognizing that actually having um, figureheads that work in our business that go and speak about things and write frequently is really important work. And so I'm really lucky to work for an employer that recognizes that. It's really fascinating that actually what's, what's coming up for me as you talk about that, Gethin, is there's still quite a lot of organizational silence I see, particularly in big corporate or even SME sized companies where people are still trying to control their people and the brand message rather than that social selling element that you just mentioned by actually showing a bit more of who you truly are. And like you say, raising the profile of the voices of people that really do have a deep, deep knowledge. It's quite yeah. an interesting sort of paradox, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not a massive sports fan, but to, you know, we draw lots of uh, sports analogies in HR for some reason. Um, but you take a, a kind of football analogy, you know, you have a Premier League division team and within that team, there are a couple of footballers that are very well known. They're very famous. They go on the chat shows. They do all the interviews. Um, and they aren't separate to the team. They're part of the team. You don't do the rest of the team a disservice by pointing out some of those expert people um, that play on the team. And I, and I almost feel like more organizations should be getting to that point where you are holding up these experts and saying that, you know, we have these people working for you. Um, and, you know, we see people like, Apple do it. So, you know, everyone knows Johnny Ive, Apple's chief designer who kind of brought us the iPhone. Um, you know, in some of those big industries, we get to know those figureheads. Um, and I think whether you're working in a checkout, whether you're in a call center, if you're even, a, if you're a bin man, a woman, you know, I think it's, we should be holding up the fact that, oh, we've got these great expertise or people that care or people that genuinely want to deliver a great customer experience to our customers and hold those people up and actually say, yeah, let's champion these people. Uh, thank, thanks for sharing that. I'm going to go um, a little bit of a segue, as we always do on this podcast. I'm going to go a little bit back into your, uh, your education. Sorry, Gethin, we're going there for a second, because I always find it fascinating where you've got a really, really strong finance background. And you're in this world now of, you know, really you know, human working and employee experience, etc. cetera. Are, are there skills that you've sort of taken over from that strong finance background into your world as it exists today or has there been sort of a, a major change for you in terms of your development so i think the, the big thing for me was you know i always wanted to work in television uh, as a kid i wanted to be an animator um at a levels and gcse's i did um art so art was always going to be what i would do you know i was voted most likely to be a television um host in school it was that kind of thing um i think i was most likely to be on have i got news for you which is probably still a <laughs> still an aspiration for me um and and when that kind of as most best laid plans do didn't really work out the way i wanted it to um i did a psychology degree found myself then shortly after a stint in television working in uh, financial services specifically pensions um and i think the my first big eye-opening experience was I really pushed myself to join the management course. Um, they were managed, my manager didn't want me to at the time. It was an external course that was funded by the then Welsh Development Agency. So I just put myself on that course um, and, and got it um, accepted and then became a manager in, in legal and general annuities department. Um, 
And at one point I was managing about 20 people. Um, and it was an incredibly difficult job just to manage that volume of people correctly in the course of a month. And I experienced some really, really difficult conversations with people who were ill, people who had committed kind of inexcusable acts whilst they were at work and had to go through disciplinaries. Um, and I had an incredible baptism of fire um, of my first 12 months as a manager. And it taught me so much about people and people at work and how they want to be treated. And that was really my journey, I think, towards this whole employee experience was starting to realize that, you know, to be a good manager and to be a manager with humanity um, was not an easy thing to do. Anyone could get the job as a manager, but to kind of manage people and develop them properly was a, a unique set of skills. Um, and I think conversely, alongside that, I did my first few qualifications for the Chartered Insurance Institute. I was obviously working in pensions, so got to know that as a product incredibly well. Um, and that's really servicing me well now as I do lots of work around financial well-being, so workplace financial well-being, and actually how do we get people to stop worrying about money to the extent that they are um, and get people better prepared for the future. Oh, thanks, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's really, really fascinating. In, in, in terms of what I'd like to touch on a little bit, you know, we're talking a little bit about metrics, a bit of a segue from finances. Um, you and I share um, a mutual disdain for the obsession with measuring ROI out of everything. Um, I'm just interested to see where your thinking is around that at the moment and how does that sort of show up around employee experiences, either a positive or a negative? So the fact that we might talk um, about measuring things like well-being, engagement and experience um, and yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I don't, I think these things are really difficult to ma measure. I've struggled to see people doing it really well. Um, and just by saying this out loud on this podcast will draw me a lot of fire from, um, from Twitter. So it's a pretty divisive subject. Um, it'll become as no surprise that the people that disagree with me most are the people that have organizations they work for or own that measure, um, things like employee sentiment and well-being and engagement and experience, et cetera. Um, but I think we just kind of, you know, I did a talk recently um, for Minds at Work and, you know, it was it was a, based on the idea that we've become so obsessed with measuring things. And actually, when we think of some of the most important things in our personal lives, we don't and can't measure those. So the example I used was love. Love is something I think everyone strives to get. Um, we know when we've got it. We know when we haven't got it. We miss it. It's gone. But it becomes incredibly difficult to measure and quantify and that's because it means so many things to different people. Um, and I think when you think about engagement and well-being and all that kind of stuff, again, this stuff is so personalized. It's so deep rooted in psychology for the individual. And it's also so fluid that I really struggle with how do we measure that stuff? You know, how can, unless I tell you, how do you know from one day to the next that my well-being has improved from today as, than it was yesterday? Um, and I think we, we, we start to hear this a lot in well-being. You know, well-being is kind of the new kind of buzzword when it comes to HR and the employee experience. Um, and I get asked a lot about proving that return on investment. You know, if I spend this money on improving the well-being of my employees, how will I get that back or how will I start to measure that? Um, and something that really struck when I was thinking about this recently was if you think about your employee well-being strategy, you, you might have one or you might not have one, but think about what you do at work at the moment around well-being for employees. And now think about the person you love most in your life. And imagine that person going through their darkest days and then think about how you'd want them to be treated at work. 
and how you'd want that person to be treated by their manager, by the HR team, by the owners of the business. So it's kind of like if you found out that person that you love most in life was worried and stressed about money, for example, and it was really upsetting them and causing huge amounts of anxiety, what would you want them, your employer to do to make sure that person was looked after? And I think if you start to think about well-being in that context, you start to come up with some very different answers and you start to realize that actually this is the right thing to do and should, is, is measuring that really important because the impact it is can sometimes be immeasurable. You know, I think I've heard of some employers that have helped employees transition. And when they transition, that is the greatest gift you could ever give that person was to put them in the body they always felt that they were born in. Um, and I think that is a great gift. And I don't know how you measure that impact. Well, do you know something? It's a really, there's a lot of, lot of stuff coming up for me as you describe this. And I think it's back to that point, love. Yeah, that's the, you know, that, that person who, who was supported to go through transition, they would have felt love and care from that organisation. So I think that love word is one we shouldn't be afraid to be talking about more, Gethin. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting. I've been reading a lot recently about, um, you might have heard of that fictive kinship. Oh, I haven't actually. So fictive kinship is the idea that you build a really close bond with somebody where you have no blood or marriage ties. Um, but you become really close to that person. So, you know, I, I have that with my partner. We're not married, uh, not part of the family, but obviously I love that person deeply and they are a huge part of my life. And those fictive kinships, I think, is something we really should be starting to develop more of in work. And it kind of, I, I get that this sounds probably a bit hippy and a bit rosy, but I think if you really care about the people you work with, um, and you allow those people to blossom, you create such an inclusive welcoming culture that so many traditional HR issues start to go out the window. Um, you know, I know you and I talked the other day on Twitter about unlimited vacation. You know, I think if, if people say unlimited vacation doesn't work in an organization because somebody will abuse it or somebody will feel too much pressure over not taking enough holiday or taking too much holiday, then I don't see those as issues with that process in, in particular. I think that's an issue with the culture. So I think if you can create a culture where if you do those things for people, they won't feel negatively about them and you don't allow them to feel negative about it, that that's the kind of culture we should be striving for. And I think, you know, love um, can, can play a big part in that. I don't think it's romantic to think that way. No, and I, and I think it's, you know, it's important to sort of put here as well, for anyone that's listening to us, we're not talking gushy running off into the sunset love. We're talking about care, compassion, empathy, the desire to connect on a human level without fear yeah, that's, that's my interpretation of love anyway. How would you, just, what, what does love mean to you in the workplace, out of interest? So I think um, a really good example that um, might put this in context for some of your listeners is um, when you watch programmes, I, I see this a lot with, um, um, what are the, I've forgotten the name of it, one of the dating programmes we have in the UK, I think it's also in different countries. Um, but they just get random people, they match them together and they kind of film them how um they uh, they film their first dates and you know typically when i'm start these people walk into the restaurant and they might say a little the viewer your initial reaction is oh god look at this guy or oh my god what's she wearing you know that that instant reaction that we all have when you see somebody for the first time um and then as you start to see them on their date these people start to open up and they might explain the challenges they've been through the the death they've experienced in a, to a, with a close family member 
Um, and as soon as that starts to happen, I, and, and I guess most people start to really see that that showing that vulnerability really warms me to other people. And so all of a sudden it kind of makes me feel like actually I've immediately seen the person in this. If I can see the challenge they've been through, or I can just kind of feel that they've struggled, then you really start to see the human and you kind of hate yourself for the initial reaction that you had towards that person. Um, but I think, you know, you take that kind of thinking into the workplace, you know, Janet that works in finance stops becoming Janet that works in finance when you realize that she's a widow and she's bringing up two kids on her own and she's struggling to make ends meet. Um, and I think as soon as you start to see people for people, that's when you really start to, to kind of love them. Um, and I th- that, that's my experience anyway. I think, I think that's really super powerful, actually. And I, I'm, I'm going to link that back to something you said earlier on when we we're talking about the sort of well-being link and actually, you know, well-being, you know, your employee experience. It's so personal. You know, every single one, you know, we've only got our own view of the world, haven't we, that we see, see everything through. And if we don't take the time, I think maybe this is the, one of the things I'd like to discuss with you, Gethin, is, you know, do we, do we prioritise connection with our peers and our colleagues enough such that we can build these more meaningful relationships, which then for lead to a better experience and, and more enjoyment at work. I'm, I, I, I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Um, I, I don't think we do. I think, um, I think that's a really fair point. I think, I think we used to, um, you know, the world of work has changed significantly in the last five years. It will change significantly in the next five. Um, and it becomes really difficult to have that face to face and build those emotional bonds with your colleagues when you're not in the office very often or you work entirely remotely um you know you can have phone calls and you can have video chats but you know it doesn't replace uh the touch of somebody's hand or a hug or just laughing in somebody's company you know all that is the kind of stuff that builds these connections um and it's one of the chapters of the book is is talking about how actually building that connection and at work is something that needs to be a priority because you know, some of the most recent statistics show that about 60% of employees say they feel lonely at work. And if those people have no family or relatives or friends outside of work, that person can live a very lonely existence and their only interaction with humans might be their time at work. Um, so, you know, you think about the impact we can have on people's lives. That's quite significant. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really interesting, actually. And like for anyone that's listening to us thinking, Carl, this is all a bit fluffy and lovely and a bit too human for them on this on this conversation you know i know firsthand you know firsthand getting the results the impact on performance of people feeling connected and feeling part of something bigger than themselves you know i've done it in my own work organization where we increase sales by six million and margin by one and a half million over three years by literally shifting to a more collective was it love it was in a way but there's definitely an aligned desire to connect and work together in a way we'd never done before so like the results are there, aren't they, for being more human? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's direct correlations between how caring an organization is and how they perform. You know, there's been analysis of the S&P, the FTSE 500. You know, it's, there's enough evidence out there to show that if people feel like they're safe and looked after, they perform better. And it's really interesting, I think, when you think about the relationship your, you or your listeners will have with their husbands, wives, partners, you know, it's, it's really difficult when you know, you build that relationship and you trust that person and they might do things that will annoy you and they might do things that will upset you, but you intrinsically know that I'm in a loving relationship with this person. So if they did something that annoyed me, they didn't mean to do that, you know, and if they did something upset me, it wasn't done out of kind of spite. Um, And I think if you create a really trusting environment between the employees and employers, 
you get that leeway as well. So you know that your employer might make a mistake, but because it's one mistake in a sea of really care and actions that they've done that, that year, all of a sudden you start to kind of give them um, a, bit of, uh, a bit of ground and actually understand that, you know, actually on the whole, these people do the right thing for me. Um, and so I think it's really important at work, you know, whether we want, whatever we want to call it, love or that, that kind of really strong human connection with the people we work with, I think is really, really important to the employee experience. And, and how, how does judgment come up in all of this? Because what I'm, what I'm hearing, what I'm sensing from this conversation is that ability to reserve judgment or to drop our thinking or our, like I say, our judgment of others. Is, it seems to me to be quite an important part of enriching the experience gap in. Yeah, and that's really hard to do because I guess, you know, you, you know I'm the kind of person that, you know, I might be uh, driving along and I might be in the fast lane and there's a car in front of me going really slowly and I get annoyed at that. And then as I overtake, I realize it's a little old lady and then I feel really guilty about it because I start to empathize and realize that actually, how would I feel if I felt somebody might be driving aggressively behind my mother in a car and that kind of stuff. Um, so it becomes really easy for us to kind of empathize with people by just putting ourselves um, in their shoes. Um, and I think maybe some of this stuff comes with age as well. Just age and experience means you start to see people for who they are, you know, the way they vote um the way they act in work and all that kind of stuff you know everyone's got burdens um you know something my dad used to always tell me it's always stuck with me uh, my dad was a prison officer for about 30 years and when we were kids we'd be walking down the street and you know guys would come up to him and they'd kind of say i you know i've been clean for six months or i haven't been back inside for two years and they just wanted to say hello to my dad and i never quite understood why you know, television and Hollywood led me to believe that all prisoners hated their prison officers and that prison officers were these kind of, these bastard men that used to just screw over these guys who were being, and girls who were being punished. Um, and I started to realize, my dad started to tell me from an early age that, you know, he can separate the act somebody, the act somebody does from the person. And he used to always say to the prisoners, I don't hate you, I hate what you did. Um, and it always really got him a huge amount of ground and, you know, there's a, there's a letter that a prisoner wrote my dad once that I've got framed. And it was basically something on the lines of, you saw me for a human, you saw me as a person, not what I did. Um, I'll always remember you did that for me. And I make sure I'm going to get clean. And if I do, I'll dedicate it to you. And the guy did. The guy got clean, got, got full-time employment um, because he was, treated, he was treated as a human by somebody. Um, and I'm incredibly proud of my dad for doing that. And my dad's always brought us up to become... You know, me and my brothers to become men of value and substance rather than success um, and I think there's there's lessons for us all in how we treat people and, and how we will ultimately get tra- treated back it's funny isn't it I read um, there's an amazing book called everybody matters by Bob Chapman and Raj Asoda I'm not sure if you've read it um, Gethin but it talks on the on the front title it talks about looking after your people as if they're family and that can be divisive depending on your family upbringing but I think the, the, the sort of the intent of it is very much what you're speaking to, which is actually what if, you know, what if we treated everybody in the workplace if they were our own, our own children, assuming that you come from a, you know, a non-dysfunctional family. Like, it does shift your mindset, doesn't it? I, don't, I think, you know, I don't want people to think we're being overly kind of uh, slushy and romantic with this thinking, you know. We're, 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 we're both uh, guys that work in this industry and we've worked in it for a long time. 
So I think we understand that people aren't going to go back to their workplace and suddenly start being overly nice with people. But, you know, that, that nicety in treating somebody like human is sometimes saying hello. You know, any, any documentary I've ever seen with a homeless person on it, most of them say, you know, I just want to be treated like a human again. I just want somebody to have a conversation with me like I'm a human being, not that I'm just somebody who wants their money or, or their sandwich or whatever it might be. And so I think it's, you know, we can do that really easily at work. It's very easy for us to just say hello and acknowledge other people. Um, it's really easy for us to make a cup of tea for somebody else. Um, you know, the rise, the prevalence of mental health issues in the workforce at the moment means if we don't make more of an effort to look out for each other, that issue is just going to get compounded. And one day we could be victims of that and we would have wished that people treated us in a very different way. Well, you know, you shared about your anxiety openly. I've shared many times this podcast about me burning myself out a few years ago. And, you know, we need, we need to give ourselves permission to stop. I think for me, that's one of my, one of my biggest learnings the last couple of years is like it's okay to slow down it's okay to actually to stop yeah and i think what's what's really interesting is in a workplace context that can be from a kind of hr management level can be quite difficult to do and i think there's this um this illusion of transparency so the idea that we think other people know what we're thinking or what we want um you know you get that in relationships quite a lot you know i expected you to do this or i thought you would do this um you know we aren't the same we don't all think the same um, and employers don't instinctively know what employees need. So when you think about well-being at work, you think about the employee experience, there's a huge amount built into empathy. We need to empathize with employees, and we also need to just ask them. But that needs to be led by the employers. The employers need to start that conversation because it's very difficult for somebody who's struggling or feels alone um, to actually you know, step through the door, even if you do have this open-door policy. It takes quite a lot for somebody to step forward and say, you know, I'm feeling lonely, or I'm feeling depressed, or I'm struggling, I've got anxiety, which is why the conversation needs to be led by employers to give as many opportunities for that conversation to start as possible. Yeah, pre- pre- appreciate that. That's cool. As we start to look to wrap up, Gethin, I'm really interested to touch on something else with you, which was around the link to employee experience, well-being, and indeed, actually, how how do you go about even creating a well-being strategy? Because you know, so often people are talking about the fruit on the table or the football, you know, you know, the football um, in, in, in the lounge or whatever. But, you know, what, what, do you have any advice for anybody that's thinking, hang on, I really do want to be more intentional about being more mindful for my team and giving them this space we're talking about? How, how would someone go about, in your opinion, creating a well-being strategy? So I think typically what we tend to do is kind of sit down with the clients and find out, you know, why are we trying to look at well-being? So, you know, when you look at some of the research around workplace well-being coming out of the US in the last couple of months, the intent behind well-being, when that is viewed by the employee, can make the difference as to whether your well-being succeeds or not. So if an employee thinks that you're just looking at well-being because you want to positively affect your turnover rates or your absentee, or you want to reduce your healthcare costs, that doesn't perform as well as when employees believe that you actually have their interests at heart. So I think part of the journey always starts with asking people how better you can help. Um, I think it's, it becomes, it gives you some really quick wins. You, I think employers would be quite surprised that if you got, if you could speak to all your employees or you just got a sample of employees and ask them what more we could be doing for you, you might get some surprising answers, which is stuff that you can probably think, well, okay, yeah, we can do that tomorrow. And so that starts that journey. Um, and well-being is a journey, you know, it's not a, it's not a product you can buy, put in place and walk away. 
it's a long-term commitment to the fact that you know the world will evolve your employees will evolve you will evolve and um well-being needs to keep up with that um i think where we've kind of got to at the moment you know touching again on that that return on investment type measuring thing you know we we run really efficient businesses at the moment you know we kind of almost every boat business is focused on creating a kind of standard approach and what that means is we end up leaving out those things that can't be measured but i think that stuff ends up being the most important stuff the human stuff um you know time spent with customer the impact that has on the well-being of an individual the impact that has on the well-being of the customer um when you have got supportive colleagues at work and that kind of thing you know it's all really really difficult to measure um there's a, a a great example i think which should be part of a well-being strategy with a uk bank and this bank gives employees discretionary spend to enhance the customer experience and what they started to realize when they did this was those employees were using um that discretionary spend to actually make quite a significant difference in some cases to the lives of their customers so one example was a customer came into the bank branch really rushed running late they were on their lunch break um they were really hungry and just needed to get some banking stuff done so that employee of this bank went and bought some food for that person so that whilst they had the meeting they could eat and they could go back to the office and not be hungry um somebody else told a story to me once about how um a customer came in wasn't having a great day and really struggled that day lots of things had gone wrong so before that woman left the branch they went and bought her a bunch of flowers just to cheer her up wow and what the employees themselves started to report was better well-being so their ability to kind of be empowered to make those decisions to help other people started to positively impact their own well-being um and so i think there's some really quick wins that people can do that benefit almost everyone in the organization awesome and look i've got to ask you one more question which i like to ask our, our guests once in a while which is who or what is inspiring you the most right now getting small question well, yeah yeah absolutely um so i think there um you know i think you you mentioned at the start you know you kind of listed me as an employee experience expert and i kind of i always fend that term off because i'm not sure i'm not sure i even believe in experts i think you know you could become an expert in an iphone because an iphone is finite um you know you can learn everything about an iphone but i think the work that we do is so fast changing it's so evolving so much that it's really difficult to keep up which means becoming an expert in this kind of stuff is really difficult um and there are lots of people in our industry who take that title of expert run with it and believe that their opinion on something is more important than everyone else's but i believe you know everyone's experience is important no matter what that is we can all learn something from other people so i think those people that acknowledge that and those people that don't claim to be the big experts and the people that hold other people up rather than put them down um they're kind of heroes of mine at the moment and um you know that there's there's lots of people on the list that we know you know I would put you on that list I would put people like Shaquille Butt Kevin Green Perry Timms um Nick Court Rob Robson these are all people that kind of mix in the same circles of us and they celebrate the success of each other they um cleverly debate the research and we share ideas um and they're the real experts i think and the real people that are inspiring at the moment are the people that kind of just support and encourage each other because collectively we have the power to to make a big impact on the world and the workplace but i think we we do that together we don't do that on our own well that's wonderful and i'm very very generous of you to include me in that as well and that's very sweet but i think you know i share your view of 
And I, and I really like your answer to the question because sometimes it can seem a grandiose question and I just love your humility and your energy around your sort of immediate network. And I've, I've learned so much with this podcast journey actually over the last sort of 16, 17 months. It really is about surrounding yourself with people that lift you up, that energize you, you know, where you can really make a difference. It doesn't mean you don't leave, you don't leave people behind if they're wounded, but you know what I mean? Like we really, yeah, absolutely. I think we're far better together, aren't we? We really are. Yeah. You just like, you know, I mentioned at the start, you know, it's a self-published book. Um, it's, it didn't have a marketing budget. That book was almost the success of that book is down to the, the network and the industry that we work in uh, and the supportive nature of that, because all of those people um, who bought it and read it and reviewed it and talked about it and continue to do so. Um, they're the people that are, are making the book a success. You know, it's, it's very easy to, somebody told me the other day, it's very easy to write a book. It's very easy to, it's, it's, a, it's more difficult to write a, a book that people want to read. And I think it's even more difficult to then get that book in front of people. So, um, you know, the fact that other people have been able to do that shows how kind of caring and supporting people can be. Um, I appreciate it probably sounded really kind of reflective and <laughs> romantic on this, uh, on this podcast, but um, I think you've caught me at a time where I'm really being reflecting on kind of my own success and the people that brought me here. Well, do you know something? That's not a bad thing. As we were discussing before the podcast, I think the beautiful thing about media, whether it be, you know, online or if it's some form of podcast or I think it's the sort of thing you can reflect on. I think that's the beauty of it. And, you know, you are doing great work, Gethin. You can be proud of what you're doing. You know, I'm really grateful to know you myself. And I'm hoping that there's a few more people getting in contact with you after this conversation. So how can people indeed follow up with you? What's the best medium to reach you? So if you're interested in anything that Benefex does, you can look at um, hellobenefex.com and have a look around our, our brand new website we've just released. If you want to follow me on LinkedIn, I'm just uh, Gethin Nadin. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at World of Good Book. And if you want to see what people have said about the book, you can look on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and lots of other different retailers, um, and also just follow the hashtag, A World of Good Book. Amazing. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you for having me back. Um, really enjoyed that. Thanks very much, Gary. Take care. All the best. Bye. Take care. Hi there, your podcast host, Gary Turner, is wrapping up this excellent conversation with Gethin Naden. Just wanted to share a few of the uh, most impactful takeaways for me. Um, one of the ones was around Gethin saying that if you really care about the people you work with and you allow those people to blossom, you create such an inclusive, welcoming culture that so many traditional HR issues go out the window. What do you think to that? What are you hearing? What are you sensing? What are you feeling when you hear that comment back? For me, I think there's still the challenge between what the, you know, the, the need to be done, transactional, administrative aspects of HR versus the more strategic, cultural and people development aspects of HR. And whilst both are necessary, I've heard many times people talking about the fact that um, many HR functions tend to operate to protect the organisation against the potentially rogue 1% rather than allowing the employee experience and the opportunity to flourish for the other 99%. So I'm just wondering what comes up for you on listening to that comment by uh, Gethin. In addition, I also enjoyed him speaking about the fact that creating a trusting environment between employees and employers will lead to more leeway for mistakes. This speaks wonderfully to me to uh, the mix of experimentation and also safety. Now, if people don't feel they can speak up when they see there's an error or if they see there's something going wrong or indeed if they've got a new idea or innovation to try and improve the ways of working, 
if people don't feel safe to speak up um, in any of those different areas, people aren't going to take risks. And there'll probably be more mistakes than you realise and they just get repeated. That's certainly been my experience in my work life to date, is that the, the multiple times that re- re- mistakes get repeated, but they're not actually measured. Those opportunity costs, sorry, the opportunity costs add up over time. Um, so if you imagine a, a bucket, uh, I always use the analogy of a leaky bucket, you can be pouring billions and millions on, in the, into the top of the bucket. But if you've got all these little leaky holes, and I think HR is one of those key functions that can plug those leaky, hole bu- leaky holes in the bucket, um, now at some point the holes will be bigger than the amount of money going in at the top. So something to be thinking about there around experimentation and safety. And finally, um, one of my other big takeaways was there are direct correlations between how caring an organisation is and how they perform. I've got a real life case study of that in my own work organisation and this speaks wonderfully to the work of Bob Chapman, CEO of Barry Waymiller. And one of my favourite quotes of his was that do we really need the ROI on caring? So I hope that those reflections add some value to you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation um, between Gethin and I. We always welcome feedback from you, good, bad and developmental. Um, also, if you wouldn't mind leaving a podcast review, wherever you host your podcast, but particularly on Apple iTunes, we can try and reach more people with these deeply human conversations. That would be much appreciated. And if you're interested to find out any more about myself or the listening organisation, there's a number of new products there, including the Engageathon and our safe house on the listening organisation, oneword.co.uk. Wishing you, one and all, wherever you are in the world, a lovely day afternoon or evening and until next time have a wonderful day and thank you for joining us on value through vulnerability